I would say that if you're an AV company and you don't have at least one serious OEM partnership, you want to be getting acquired now or you need to demonstrate something and do a SPAC, I guess, because six months from now, you're not going to be in business. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I am Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch, and I am joined today by... Uh, I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the Communications Director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Uh, I'm Alex Roy, uh, the founder of the No Parking Podcast, the producer of Apex, the Secret Race Across America, and I do not represent Argo AI here on the Atonicast. Good reminder. Thank you for that. There's some people, well, I, get, I get inbound emails and messages and people are like, oh, you know, this and that and questions and yada, yada. No, no. Um, that, that's not the case. Alex, Alex Roy barely speaks for himself. Yeah. But I do have a lot of strong opinions on a lot of things and they are guided by the wisdom I've accumulated anywhere I go. Right. Well, you have strong opinions about the Mercedes steering wheel, I believe. No, so so Mercedes uh, released. Uh, they showed their new S class uh, this week, and it's as anyone would tell you, it's um, it's a cornucopia of high tech. But Hannah Elliott, everyone's favorite, posted a picture of the steering wheel and asked for people's thoughts on Twitter. And let me tell you, you have not seen so many negative tweets. Uh, as as you'll find uh, underneath that picture, and and I can see why because the S class is supposed to be the absolute state of the art of technology, the best of everything. The steering wheel has as many buttons as like a Pontiac in like 1983, and I'm trying to understand. You have a lot of smart people at Mercedes. In fact, we have some people who were on our podcast who are brilliant, who may or may not have worked on systems that are in that car, and it's it's a terrible steering wheel. Too many buttons, too many toggles. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's too many buttons on the steering wheel. And then the rest of the car is basically, I don't want to say it's like Tesla because they have three screens and augmented reality and, um, you know, touch displays. But like make a decision, you know, if you're going to use buttons on the wheel, I'm not saying Tesla's implementation is optimal, but it is very good if that is the idea. It's very good. Well, there's a there's a balance. And, you know, I will I have not looked at that picture, but one of my big complaints of a lot of the German automakers in recent years has been um, and it seemed like Mercedes was moving in the right direction, which was that they had toggles, they had gesture control, they had they had uh, switches, they had I mean, it literally everything that was possible, they would just put in and it was way too much. And it, I think it was, I don't know, maybe uh death by committee or they just certain programs um, weren't removed. I'm not really sure what happened, but well, I was very excited about the upcoming S class because I thought that they were getting away from that and that were, they're going more streamlined. It sounds like they did everywhere except for the steering wheel. I, I yeah, I just don't get it. You know, back in the, 80s if you remember there was mercedes had like what four five models bmw had like five models and sometime in the late 80s early 90s everyone had to build everything and everything had to have everything there was no that more was more less was less and this happened across luxury products and brands and you know as i'm a hi-fi guy um 
And I remember all these high-end audio brands, I guess, man, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, Audio Research and Conrad Johnson. And these are fairly obscure companies unless you're into hi-fi. They did the same thing. They came out with everything. And that, that was very bad for business. It's bad for brands. Brands should not build too many things. And too many options is not a sign of opulence or luxury. It's actually a sign of, of something sucks. It just sucks. So I, I feel like we're kind of in the like almost a, a dark age of of like user interface design because in cars because like I, I agree. I mean I you know I've defended buttons before. Um and I do think that like physical switches of, of various physical controls are really important for cars because um it is a, a safety critical thing and you can't so so on the one hand, like I, I feel like we're you know, we have we have sort of two extremes well represented in the car market, one of which is I agree, like way too much, too many buttons, too much, just too much of everything. And you get down, you sit in one of these cars. And I think in particular for like any kind of shared vehicle application, like that is just not going to work. It's overwhelming. It's like the shepherd's pie of technology. (laughs) Yeah. But on the other hand, like the other extreme is really not much better in the sense that like it's absurd that you'd have to go into a, a menu on a, a touchscreen to change your wiper speed, right? And things like that. And, I agree. And I think that, you, yeah. you know, so I think Tesla represents the other extreme of simplifying too much. Uh, and and I get why that that's appealing because the status quo is sort of, you know, you're overwhelmed by this ocean of buttons and, and that's like a refreshing alternative. But the reality is, is that neither of these approaches is really like a thoughtful way to just be the best uh, way to to serve the needs that the driver actually has and not overwhelm them with any more, but also not hide, you know, things away so that they're not really usable when you need them. You know what I think, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm Ed's gonna be mad at me for saying this. People say, you know, investors like to say, oh, t- Tesla's not a car company; it's a software company, which is absurd. Of course, it's a car company. However, in one way, they are a software company, and 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 car companies haven't gotten this yet i don't think maybe i don't know um i don't want to appear biased maybe the ford Mach-E interface is amazing i don't know i haven't, haven't used it um but uh a ui designer at apple or uber or lyft these people are pushing out the ui is absolutely this it's clear and car companies it seems often hire a ui person but only for the infotainment and not for the rest of the car or it's two different people or it's three and the groups are not like, it's not a holistic approach. Well, let's not forget too, that a lot of these automakers, there are thousands of people and you're dealing with a corporate culture in which um, it's very difficult to change. It's like turning a battleship. Right. And so I thought that MBUX system was like a really good direction in a lot of ways. And Um, I was hoping that they were going to strike this perfect balance. So I'm actually really interested and excited to see the lucid air, um, unveiling on the ninth. Um, I mean, I've, I've had a sneak peek, so I already know what's going on, but, but, uh, does it strike a balance? Yeah, I know. I see the embargo police driving past your house right now. (laughs) Um, but I, well, do you all remember how long ago it was when we sat in that prototype and drove around LA. It, yeah, yeah. And at the time we were like, this is an amazing interior. 
they are, I just talked to Peter Rawlinson, the CEO and CTO actually about, um, earlier today. And, um, he's like, listen, we're not trying to be a premium. We're trying to be the S class of EVs, the A, the A, the eras. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that if they show a design that's streamlined, that has a couple of toggles, but also that touchscreen display and instrument cl- cl- cluster, that that might be, that might be the actual balance right there. I, I'm, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I'm rooting for Lucid for sure. I'm absolutely rooting for them. The but I have to use it. And, and that's the thing. It's like you can see it, but using it is a, a totally different thing. And, and by the way, I think that like in general too, like everyone, like this, the online car culture thing of judging things, like coming to a really, really firm conclusion based on some photos is especially about a UI, uh, not, not smart. Also, I think a lot of modern designs don't show up that well in photos and you really have to see them in person uh, to really appreciate the design. Right. So I think that's another piece of all this. Yeah, I mean the position the positioning of where things are matters. Like my big complaint in driving Alex's Tesla is uh well, I mean it is parked in my driveway and I love by mm-hmm. the way sidebar there's nothing I love more than getting trolled by Tesla fanboys who recommend that I get in a Tesla Sunday and then I would truly understand and be able to cover the car <laughs> company. And then I get to say not only have I driven literally thousands of miles in every single Tesla, but there's one sitting in my driveway. So shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, by the um, way, before yeah. we get too much past the lucid piece, the, the episode uh, that Kirsten was referring to is episode number 35. Um, if you want to go back into our archives and check that out. Um, wow. That was so was long a ago. Really long time yeah, ago. Was, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you this. I am super rooting right now. I'm rooting for lucid. Um, I am rooting for uh, the Ford Mach-E to be awesome. And, I know a little bit about it, and I'm, I hope it's as awesome as it, it appears to be. And the Polestar too, the Volt, the yeah, uh, that that yeah, uh, like these cars are like everything is aligned for them to be good. Please be good. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, crack the speaking market. Of, of Hannah Elliott, I mean, she so she reviewed the Polestar too um, right before yeah. she was in the the Mercedes uh, just a couple of days ago, yeah. and. Uh, it was, she was extremely positive about it. Obviously like things like build quality, uh, she said better than Tesla's, but, um, but, but the kind of surprise, right. There's not a huge surprise there. What was surprising was that she said that, uh, I think to some people, not to me, but, uh, was that the UI, uh, and the touchscreen, the, the center stack was, was significantly better than Tesla's. Um, and it's because, uh, you know, this is the first, uh, use of, uh, Android automotive OS, which is not the same right. as, uh, Android auto. Android Auto. Yeah, this is right. a, a. This is the underlying operating system throughout the that that is that is all the infotainment. It is the uh, you know HVAC. It's yep. controlling and, everything. And on a just on a narrative level, there's been this argument right for a long time, like oh Tesla's going to figure out manufacturing before the automakers figure out software. Well, in Volvo's case, they're <laughs> like, okay, maybe that's true. We'll just hand over the center stack to Google. Um, and if, you know, they can do a, you know, again, it's supposed to be a really fun, fun to drive car. It's not gonna be as fast as a Tesla. Um, so there's, you know, there's going to be pros and cons to these things, but, um, you know, that, that ability to do a really good connected center stack display, uh, you know, no one, uh, you know, Google is right up there with Apple, right. Uh, or Android, you know, I, we did a lot of talk about this in the past, but the, the talk about quick and fast and EVs is absurd. My BMW M5, 
the greatest M5 ever made, maybe the best car uh, BMW ever made. It's a 2000 E39. That was that thing was zero to sixty in like four point five seconds. Literally, like the the base model of almost any decent EV coming out soon or any Tesla is faster than that, and no one needs faster than that. For daily driving, it's, it's I have a, a 99 right. M coupe and it has 240 horsepower. A freaking like a, a, a Toyota Camry, like the the I don't know, is it V6 or turbo now? I don't even know, but but the up engine version of a Toyota Camry can smoke that thing in terms of, of sheer power, right? Well, and I think that that's where all of a sudden, I mean, it's fun to look at the quarter mile number, let's say that Lucid has, and and to have those little rivalries and wars over acceleration but what will end up selling the car is how it feels to interact and how easy it is to interact while you're driving you know and i think tesla hits has managed to hit a lot of those bars but i still have a few complaints like i still have problems with the radio all the time it is constant really oh Oh. Constantly. I'll tell you though, Constantly. When, you, when you read the forums though, nobody says, I don't like this design feature. And so I'm not going to buy a Tesla. I mean, people do occasionally say that, but like what, what seems to really drive people away from the brand, um, just in terms of what I've seen online is it's the owner experience. It's the fact that the quality is not very good and that, and that service is, is not reliable. Um, and, uh, you know, no one wants to own these things out of warranty. And I've got two of them and they've been great. Okay. But how, I mean, you have one of them, you haven't even been in the same state as for more than a couple yeah, of days in the last like Kirsten's year. Garrison's got it. I know. So, but anyway, the point is I'm talking about people who are like relying on these cars a lot. Um, those are the, I would say I haven't like personally had any service issues. Not that I'm driving it that much. Um, but there are little things that are just, I, that I just want to work all the time. Like I just want the radio to work all the time. This is a very wait, simple wait. thing. Terrestrial radio? Yeah, like FM radio. It's 2020. I, I understand that, but I want to listen to my local community radio station, KXCI. Don't they have like a, a stream? A stream? They do, and it's problematic. Um, so this is getting way off the topic. Yeah. Um let's not make this about Tesla and let's okay. move on. There's and there's there's some legitimately big news. Yeah. Let's talk actually about something that really matters, the GM Honda Alliance. I don't know. Can we call it an alliance? I think it's an alliance now, yeah. We don't know what it is. Do we know what it is? It's an alliance. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and do we know what's the story? Where's the link? They, they signed a, it's, it, yeah. So, I mean, they did sign a non-binding memo of understanding. So it's not uh-huh. like a, there's no capital tie-ups or anything like that. Um, but this is just the latest step in a long series. In fact, they even released a, um, a an infographic uh, showing the history of this relationship, and it's been going on for for some time now. And right. it's been getting closer and closer, and and covering more and more, uh, you know, areas. Well, and I care about it not just because it's two auto ma- manufacturers that are coming together, but also the implications for Cruise. And so Cruise has. You know, started with the acquisition from GM, but in the years after that, other companies have invested either as capital or in the case of Honda, my understanding is essentially manufacturing credit, but as an investor into Cruise. 
Um, so Honda is a part of that, and we saw the fruits of some of that um, earlier this year, which feels like 10 years ago uh, when we were all traveling, and that was in January when we saw the cruise origin. And that was- Comical? That was the product. That was the product of this, this cruise Honda GM relationship. So I'm very curious to see what that, this means for cruise. And, and also for the, the, just the core automotive business, but, but I'm very curious what this is going to mean for, for the autonomous piece. Yeah. And, and on the core business, I mean, I, I think this was also, it was something that needed to happen because, um, you know, I think GM, uh, pretty much has decided and it's, it, there's some really historic track, like it's kind of a historic tragedy that GM, GM fell behind in, in sedans, basically making competitive sedans in terms of efficiency and quality, um, fell behind Honda in the seventies, essentially, or eighties. I mean, depending on it, how you measure these things, but, but so it's been decades and and they've been trying to crawl back in the sedan space. And it really was sort of right around the bailout that, their quality of their of their product, both the design and the, the actual reliability of the products, reached a point where it was people sort of agreed that it was more or less competitive. Um, and what's happened since the 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 you know 2008 or so is you know the, their products have you know continued to be be competitive, but the market has has died. I mean, the market for sedans has gone away. And uh, so, you know, I don't, I think, you know, GM like, like Ford has cut a lot of the sedans out of their lineup and NFCA. Um, and I think that at this point, you know, uh, companies are, it's such a commodified space. The sedan market is so commodified um, that I think you have to, it's crazy not to uh, get the economies of scale that go with, with this kind of partnership. Yeah. And speaking of sedans though, I mean, they could just battle this by putting some like little springs on the back seat, elevate the ride height and call it a crossover. Um, like some companies I know. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, yeah, you're right. Like Honda and a couple of other companies have become so cost efficient and like have commoditized the sedan. It's a go-to and it is truly like they truly offer entry-level uh, vehicles that yeah, they're a little bit vanilla, but like, but they last forever and you know that they're going to last forever and you could pretty much take a hammer to the engine and it's going to keep running. I can't lie. I, I've always wanted to own an, a Honda Accord, but it's a 1994 era Accord. Remember that Oh yeah, one? those are great. Like, yeah, that's, for me, that's like the forever car. That's the for they're trying to bring the aero deck version. I don't know. I don't know if it was that generation, um, but it's like the, the three door hatchback sort of like. Anyway, they're amazing. Look, I love. I mean, I'm a shooting break nerd. So you, you know, I hate to go back to a prior topic, but it's the same topic. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Speaking of making too many products, it's like it's you're better off making a few products that are both great and people buy them. And the and Honda, you know, like just think about like that generation Accord, maybe every Accord, like the Camry, is like a seminal car. It's a seminal car in its segment, always and forever. Um, meanwhile, Mercedes has just canceled the two-door S-Class and the convertible. Not seminal cars. Too right. many models, too many variants. Right. Um, every In the future, when autonomous vehicles are deployed and every OEM has an investment in some, in some micro-mobility company and a mobility platform, um, they're going to have to build fewer, build and sell 
fewer privately owned vehicles. They have to. And you want to make sure your portfolio has no less than two seminal vehicles and probably some kind of halo car. And that might be all, all there is. And that's fine. But let them be awesome. And for Honda, it'll be the Accord. Well, the interesting thing is that, like, Ed, I think you wrote a lot about this way back in the uh, Truth About the Car days, which was, like, during the bailout. I mean, one of the big things was, like, these car companies with, like, a million brands and a lot of vehicles that were, you know, in the meh category in terms of sales, right? And so do you think we're creeping back into that era with, like, companies are going... They were... Some companies really streamlined and they were very focused and now all of a sudden they're kind of going back to that direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I th- there might be some of that. I, I, it's, it's definitely, we're not, you know, we're not where we were. I mean, I mean, GM used to have, you know, I mean, there was like Oldsmobile and, and Pontiac and Hummer, I mean, like all these brands and it was, that was really. Well, we're unique. seeing that now with EV lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they still have, they still have multiple brands. Um, look, I think, I think that, you know, really what, what underlies all this is just like, it's a core reality of the auto industry that like people just don't appreciate, which is that the hardest vehicles to make well are the most affordable. Like the, like just on a material cost basis alone, the cost to build um, a Mercedes S class or like a large, you know, premium vehicle versus a small vehicle, the cost, the, the, the difference on a cost level is much smaller. And again, those are kind of extreme examples, but, but, but the cost difference is much level, uh, much lower than the price difference. Um, so a bigger car, and this is, this is why the industry and particularly the American industry has always trended towards bigger, heavier, uh, and sort of brands and premiumness is that is that you can just charge more for something that really costs almost no more to certainly no more to very little more to develop and and all, very little more to to actually build too. Well, but that's that margin is important, especially if there's pressure to keep jobs in the U.S. because that allows you to employ workers here as opposed to doing assembly factories down in Mexico. I mean, that's that's the reason why the F one fifty is made or other like heavy trucks and stuff are typically made in the U S and not in Mexico. Right. But, but so like GM, even when its products were getting more competitive, it's sedan products. Um, it was still like, like the, uh, one of the things that came out in the ignition scandal was that the Chevy cobalt, I think it was, um, uh, it, it was from the get go. Basically the program was assumed to have 0% margin. And basically the sedans exist in American car lineups uh, because they have to have them or they had to have like, a, they had to be a full lineup automaker. Um, but they were never really a fundamental part of, of making business. They were just something that they would subsidize with their truck profits. The companies that have built core businesses around those, around those have built real like tribal knowledge with that. And really Honda and Toyota in this country, uh, there's a reason they're synonymous with the, the sedan market. And so I think that's really what what happens here is, is that GM is just saying, listen, like this has been something we are either failing at or doing because we felt we had to. It's never been something that we were really culturally committed to. And so why are we doing it? Like, why don't why not have Honda develop our cars? We'll make the trucks. We'll, we'll find a way to make that relationship work. It just makes, you know, in this business, like you can't be sentimental. You have to, you have to find these opportunities. Isn't that the entire history of GM sentimentality? <laughs> I'm curious, though, if Honda will have anything to do with their EV program at all, or if this is a way for GM to 
be able to focus on the EV program. There's been rumors or questions to Mary Barr about would you spin off the company and you know an EV company or whatever. But this would allow um, if Honda and GM come close together, maybe this would allow GM to focus more on EVs and then the heavy duty you know big SUVs and then Honda carve out that other piece. Or is Honda going to? I don't know, be a part of GM's EV program. I certainly would like to see the little Honda E come to the United States. Yeah. So, so I think, I think that's what, what, what you see is that GM is culturally committing itself to EVs. I know there's a lot of particularly Tesla fan skepticism about this, but if you understand what they're doing with Ultium, it's very clear, like that's a, a serious play that they're making um yeah i mean they're building a giant factory that's three million square feet that's not something to be overlooked if if you put as much importance on the gigafact the so-called gigafactory or gigafactory one and it's and and its relationship with panasonic then you certainly can't ignore the gm relationship with um lg yeah and 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 but the point is, is that Honda has not made that kind of commitment to EVs. They're a smaller company; they don't have the resources, um, and they are culturally committed to to their core business. And so GM is is doing that, and 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 Honda is they're a customer of of GM's Altium batteries, and so that that helps GM. Uh, so that that is definitely part of this relationship. Anyway, go ahead, Alex. Let's just hope that they invest as much in uh, battery cooling and software. Um, because the first figures that came out for, for the, what was it called? The, the lyric, the lyric, yeah. yeah. The, the, the Cadillac lyric. Yeah. Three years, it was like two years out and 300 miles of range. Like that's not going to be competitive if it's anywhere, if that's what the numbers look like or, or anywhere in that ballpark compared to what you're going to see from Tesla or the, the Mustang Mach-E or Lucid. I mean, right. Well, Lucid, Peter yeah. Rawlinson, Peter Rawlinson, uh, uh, is not uh, he's a smart guy and the battery pack in the lucid is 113 kilowatts is that correct yeah so 13 more kilowatts than the biggest tesla pack and seriously more range so expertise matters well and that's why it'll be interesting to see like <sighs> i know cadillac is like one of their big plays gm but man you know I know they didn't have necessarily as much luck with the Chevy Bolt as some other vehicles out there. But if you could go even cheaper and do like a Honda E-type vehicle, range won't matter as much because these will be city cars. So not a smart car, but something that is for the city, you know, has some great features in it. It doesn't, it doesn't need to have more than 200 miles of range. And I'll say, I'll say that at the GM uh, EV day, they showed, I don't remember anymore, at least like 17 or more like future models, uh, EV models that they're planning. All of them were larger uh, vehicle crossovers and more premium. Well, then you have to have, if you're going to do that, then you have to have, I think, even though we've talked about this not mattering, Really, in use case, you, you're going to have to have more range. You're going to have to offer because you're going up against other companies for the same, potentially the same price point that do have that. So I, I want to, one thing on the range thing, like 
I, and I know I've been consistent in saying that range is overrated and I, I still definitely believe that, but I think there's another element to this that, that is starting to get a little worrisome is that if, if, if competition in the EV space is like so dominated by range, um, at a certain point you start to ask for the kind of situation, um, that led to both Dieselgate, but then also sort of, I don't know if you remember the, the Ford and Hyundai, uh, were fined, uh, by the EPA for, for overstating. Um, like basically what happens is, is that, is that that number becomes so important that, you know, the, the automakers just like pull every trick they can to get the test number and engineer everything toward the test number. And people in the real world start not getting those numbers. And already you see that with certain EV brands and, and models. Tesla. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it just, if it, Again, I did you read the article in Car and Driver uh, last week, which was quite good? Vanderkamp did it uh, about how Tesla gets their numbers. Um, no, I didn't. Highly recommend it. Let's discuss it next week okay. because uh, it uh, he they you know they compare uh, performance at you know seventy five miles an hour mm. and show the Taycan and a Tesla. Oh, yeah, are very very close numbers yeah. at fixed speeds. Yes, um, and it it explains the EPA testing method and it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, um, well, we have other things to talk about. So do you have any final thoughts on Honda Jam before we move on? Uh, I always like to say on Twitter that I am the Nostradamus, but I will share the credit with you, my fine friends. For I think we said uh, a few months ago, consolidation was going to happen in six months. Then I said six weeks and we all grunted and here it is. <laughs> Um, well, it is an MOU, so let's not make this like you know. Let's not conflate it to beyond its importance. Let's more see is what coming. happens. More is coming, I'm sure. Okay. Just look at the sector and look what's happening. Uh, what is it? Galloway said that we have 10 years of acceleration in the online in the retail commerce space. We're gonna have 10 years of it in the next three months, and we're, a lot of companies are gonna get. So I want to. Well, hang on. I, I have one. Just, I have one thought on Honda GM before okay. we move on, and that's just Go that ahead. the the first announcement. Uh, according to this 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 graphic that they presented in 2013, sort of where they marked the the start of this relationship was about hydrogen. We haven't heard anything about that. Um, now it's possible that you know this is before GM's big Ultium play. Uh, it's possible that, that means that hydrogen is just off the table. Um, but I think there are definitely some applications where hydrogen makes sense. I really hate the idea that that zero emission technology is a, is a zero sum game. Um, because it's not like hydrogen is better for some things and batteries are better for others. Uh, and I'm curious to see if this deepening relationship between Honda and GM, um, if that component of that relationship is is something that's continuing to progress. Okay, well, we'll have to, hopefully the podcast will be around long enough that episode 400 will revert it back to episode 201 when we talked about sure. hydrogen. Um, um, I gotta leave in five minutes, guys. Yeah, you always tell us when you have to leave. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. 
Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So let's do a very, very brief um, before we get to the topic that you really want. Um, I just want to mention that the summer of SPAC, which is um, I've been talking about for a while, continues. And since we last talked, um, there are at least four other companies, um, electric vehicle startups that have, um, or related to it, that have jumped on um, that bandwagon. And also um, just today, QuantumScape, uh, which is backed by Volkswagen, um, which is a solid state battery. So related to EVs. And and then of course, some ones that are related to automotive and automated vehicle technology, specifically Velodyne and Luminar. So Nostradamus, uh, maybe you could tell me, what do you think is, what's the next company that you think is going to go this route that's in the automotive space? We've got Fisker Canoe, Lordstown Motors, Velodyne, Luminar, QuantumScape, and Nikola already have gone this path. What's next? I don't know. If you're in the AV space... Uh, and you can't get acquired or you're not being acquired, um, you put out some press releases and you could SPAC. I, sp- I mean, who- well, I mean, let's to be clear, there's nothing shady about being a SPAC. It is a way no. to askew the IPO path. It is also um, a way, the, the one unfortunate thing for journalists is that you don't have to file an S1. Which is, by the way, we should say, it used to be considered kind of a shady way to go public because of that, because it, it requires less disclosure. Well, right, it, but it just also, inevitably raises the question: What are you hiding? Right. Correct. Um, although you do eventually have to release information based on, um, you know, your annual report and your quarterly report, but you're not going to get. But but it it is essentially like the the idea of creating a a shell company is essentially the same thing as a venture fund going. Okay, we're going to raise five hundred million dollars for this fund. I mean, yes, the the financial instrument is different, but. It is essentially, you know, a couple of high-profile investors or people are saying, we're going to create this shell company, we're going to put it on the public market, and then looking for that or another company that wants to go public, looking for that coming together moment. So if you, I would say that if you're an AV company and you don't have at least one serious OEM partnership, you want to be getting acquired now, or you need to demonstrate something and do a SPAC, I guess, because six months from now, you're not going to be in business. 12 months from now, no way. Okay. So uh, I kind of, there's a few companies that come to mind that fall under that category, but there's another option. Um, So when people are looking at SPAC as a a really good way to access capital, but they then still have to answer to shareholders. And, And sometimes that can be tricky and it's not an easy game for everyone. Um, the other option is for companies to become an operator and um, they that's a different type of partnership that they would look at. So like, for example, Voyage, um, you know, they're, they're trying to be an operator too. And so that's a way to develop the full stack, but also. I mean, Voyage, it's an interesting narrative because, you know, they, everything they've got is pretty much off the shelf and, but they've got Oliver Cameron who knows more about how to you know communicate than most people in this sector, and uh, 
you know, that has he he it has value because of him. Well, and, but let's be clear. Voyage does have a an, an operation. I mean, it's correct. It's maybe not the know. biggest, most commercially viable yet, but they are on a. They're doing a very specific targeted area. They are not doing a bunch of different things. Uh, I think they're showing that companies like them, or maybe there's a business case to for an operator to come in and buy a full stack from another provider and and do a small little geofence, you know, carve out a core little market. Maybe it's university campuses, maybe it's retirement communities like Voyage. Given that the public markets are driven by narrative and optics. um, Well, they used to be driven by fundamentals too. And eventually that does catch up. I don't know what the fundamentals are behind Voyage, but there's no question that almost that, you know, Cameron is like the opposite of Elon Musk. He's likable. He uh, he's positive about the industry in general. He's like supportive and like he's like a little cheerleader for a lot for you know peer companies and he's got a narrative and he's got a voice and that go in these markets although maybe not the, the day we're recording that goes a, a lot for, that goes a, that can go a long way um, so okay yeah. well enough on the specs that's uh, do you have a prediction. Uh, no, I, I would I would just kind of maybe push back a little bit about about Alex's orthodoxy about partnerships. Um, I don't I don't know that that's that. I don't, look, I don't think you know it, it's not clear how many of the partnerships that are out there are uh, real marriages uh, that are just fully committed and 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 it's do or die. We don't know I agree a lot that. of those details, and so you know, um, and I think uh, for example. Uh, is it Sterling Anderson at Aurora or, or Chris Urmson? I think Chris Urmson at Aurora in a recent piece, um, you know, said like, we think that, uh, you know, some of, some of these partnerships are, are not going to work out and then we'll be happy to, to come in and scoop them up. Well, I'm going to say something really rude now. He would know. Well, I, and again, I, I, you know, I, I would say, I, I would him. say if, if a company does not have the runway to get to a viable business model, then yes, they need a partner. But runways depend on how much money you've raised and what your burn rate is. And then also how, you know, then how far out is your, is your business model? Um, I think if, if, if a company, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't think Aurora would be taking this position if they were worried about running out of runway in the next like year or two. I'll let you guys debate that. Cause I've got to go. Um, do something that I can't talk about, but it's going to be awesome. And we can talk about it some other time. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, we'll wrap up this show. We'll allow Alex to leave and then we'll just talk shit about you when you leave. Okay. Be my guest. Please follow me on all platforms at Alex Roy 144 and follow my new podcast. Um, the no parking podcast um, season two launches imminently. Great. Um, so to finish off that conversation, Ed, since Alex just so rudely left, he can probably hear me. Um, I think that if you took if you took away the labels of autonomous vehicles and you just basically applied the idea as how important are partnerships and that idea of how much money do you raise versus burn rate, you can it it it, it, it makes sense. I think that the difficulty is going to be though is count. You, you also can't just count on those other partnerships failing as your entry point, right? 
Yeah. Like you kind of have to think of a plan B or have something else. Like you can't hinge your business on, well, when these other partnerships fail or if they do, we'll be ready to step in because they're also, those partnerships are also likely to continue just as they're likely to potentially not continue. So you need to have some sort of other plan. And I'm assuming they have one. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, the, the eternal challenge in this space, uh, whether you're reporting on it or, or educating about it or observing it, uh, is that there's only so much information that these companies are going to make public. Right. And, and, and so we're operating in a very, very low information environment. And so I would say, you know, making any, and I think that's really, you know, now that Alex isn't here to defend himself, like that was really my one pushback. It's not that partnerships don't matter. I just would, I'm just very suspicious that any one factor is that important, especially when we can't even really quantify that specific factor in a lot of cases, right? We can't quantify what is this relationship really? What is the level of commitment really? What, you know, is the business model on the other side of it really? Like, like there's just so much we don't know. Um, right. True. And, and I think that, um, you know, welcome to the... Journalists have been struggling with this for a long time. I mean, that was the nice thing. Usually when companies would go public, it would provide some insight finally into deals or you know pending lawsuits or all this information through the S1. And the, unfortunately, the SPAC, to kind of come full circle, removes that. Um, but the issue with covering the private sector has always been this sort of opaqueness and especially around automated vehicle technology or really any technology company, because they will oftentimes lean on, you know, competitive advantage, proprietary tech. Um, and then just they they just keep so much behind closed doors. It's very difficult to assess properly how important to the business a partnership is. Um, also, I think it's very interesting that I think a lot of automated vehicle technology companies that don't have a of deep background in automotive, like traditional automotive, are learning that um, automakers are super fickle and they will partner with you and they will go through a demonstration project or pilot program and then they'll drop you and they'll move on to the next thing. And also as re leadership regimes change within a company, there's also politics that happens. And so that's really hard for a startup that doesn't necessarily, even if they have a decent runaway, you can only go through that cycle so many times, you know? And so um, that that's difficult for this on the startup side of things. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to note too, that, that, you know, and I think a lot of the reasons there are a lot of the factors you're talking about um, contribute to this, that like we're not seeing, even though there is all this uh, activity around SPACs, um, and, and going public and just stocks in, in future of mobility type of companies going crazy. Um, uh, yeah, there's clearly a gold rush on. And yet none of the major level four developers are, are, are moving to take in, like to, to, to take advantage of that. Right. I mean, an Aurora, no, so far for it's example, been... or a, like these companies, I, I think, I mean, there's at least a chance that they could catch some of this gold rush fever if they were to do a, a, a SPAC thing. But I think that like, the disclosure requirements that would be imposed on them as a public company uh, are something they don't really want to have to deal with. And I think they're far enough away from a, um, a viable business model, right? That like the question of, you know, do we want to go to 
you know, VCs or, or, or industry partners to raise future money if that's something we need to do? Or do we want to rely on the on the chances that, you know, the public markets are going to be this jazzed up about the future of mobility in two years from now? Right. And which is why my prediction is that I don't think that, I mean, and I and it could end up being incredibly wrong on this, but I don't know. I don't really see any automated vehicle technology companies, maybe tangential to it, but not the full stack providers or any of those doing the SPAC route unless they are already really far on the path of commercialization. And I think that's why you're seeing what? Like Luminar. Right. And also don't forget Luminar. And when I talked to Austin Russell, who's the, the founder, he basically said, you know, I asked him why, why this route? And he's like, well, two reasons. Like, the momentum that we got off of the production partnership with Volvo, and that's an important, far more important of a word than exclusive or whatever you want to label you want to put on it. This is going into production vehicles, shows that they are targeting something beyond just automated vehicle technology because they understand, and he said straight up to me, is not, it's a decade away. A fully so, autonomous. So, so the, the Volvo deal is for... It's production vehicles, sort of level three. Correct. Highway automation, stuff like that. And that's where they're that. And also then they, of course, looked at the exuberance in the marketplace and just the sheer amount of money that is right now capital that is available in public markets and realized the timing was right. So those two things combined, but that's a much more near term product timeline than a company that is developing full stack full self-driving, you know, full self-driving stack for like essentially acting as like a, a supplier to other companies. And, you know, there's, or also or even operating operate. your own service or, yeah. or operating your own service. Right. No, no, I just, I think, you know, uh, the fully autonomous space is still a ways from uh, having a viable business and that's okay. Like right. that's, it's totally know. okay. And that's why I would advise, you know, not that <laughs> they're taking my advice, but You know, when you have something that that is that far out, uh, shareholders can become, it can be a hot, great thing. And then when progress is slow, they can become impatient. And, you know, especially if it's um, a large shareholder, they can start exerting a little bit of power in the direction of the company. And so that was, while certainly Tesla is enjoying right now um, a different a different dynamic that was a complaint in the early stages of the company. It's, it's, you get capital, but you also have consequences to that. And it's, it's not necessarily always easy. And um, so I would think, I would hope that a lot of those companies would pause before just jumping in. Yeah. And and I think also, I mean, I think, I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how this plays out for the companies that have taken this back route, because frankly, Um, And this is not just a Tesla perspective, like this is (laughs) throughout, like all of this, this gold rush is right now that's just been happening in the last however many months, um, uh, let's just call it this year. uh, It's a speculative bubble. Like there's no way, right? There's no way to get from fundamentals to the kinds of valuations that you see. Um, And, and, you know, with a company like, I mean, take Nikola, for example, like, you know, how, how do you price execution risk for a company that's never executed anything like, right. And, and yet they have these crazy valuations. So 
Um, and, and then again, you look at also, you know, at, at some of the investor forums online, um, and it's very clear that the people who are doing this investment, or at least a lot of people who are doing, who are investing in these companies, uh, don't understand. They just think everyone else is going to invest, right? They're not betting on the technology or the business model. They're betting on the likelihood that other people are going to want to bet on that company. It's a bet on herd dynamics, not on anything to do with the companies themselves. And that's a fundamentally extremely uh, shaky foundation on which to build uh, any company, but especially like an auto manufacturing company, um, you know, or, or, or just a, a mobility company. These are long-term businesses that require uh, a long-term perspective. And I'll tell you right now, the people that are investing in, in EV, uh, newly public EV companies this year, uh, are not long-term investors. They're day traders. And again, they're betting on herd dynamics, not on uh, actual, you know, analysis of the businesses. I would partially agree with that. I mean, I think that, yes, you're seeing a lot of re- uh, new new day traders um, and retail investors. And then the, in the mix, there's always going to be people who really truly, like the true believers or who are comparing the company to Tesla. Um, but like up until this year, the company Tesla, if you want that as a, um, a, a gauge of what's to come, I tracked, I remember tracking in one year, I think it was 2018, um, their stock up and down. And it literally, it had huge fluctuations, but by the end of the year, it had almost reached the to the penny, the exact same. And so if you're good at trading on volatility, go for it. But if you're a long-term investor, like you need to be thinking way beyond one year, certainly, um, because you're going to probably end up right back in, except for these, these p- weird periods of time where the entire market is going up. Um, and, and a lot of it for, for not for fundamental reasons. Yeah. It just, it's, it's an algorithmic, algorithmic reason. Um, and not a fundamental reason, or maybe some fundamentals sprinkled in, in the mix. And, and I get yelled at about this all the time when I write about companies that have a stock run up on a specific day and doesn't seem to be any fundamental reason. And they will, using Tesla as, as an example, well, battery day, well, this or that. Right. But the Wall Street is based on expectations. And that has already been considered. If something has already been announced and talked about at length, yes, you can have some momentum going into an event. But generally speaking, speaking, if you see a sudden weird spike within a day and no news has been put out, that's oftentimes just a weird people trading on the technical moves. And it's not a fundamental word. So there's nothing wrong with it. It just is the way it is. It's not a reflection of the company. So if you look at the one-year chart, right, and, and this is adjusted for the split retroactively, uh, the, the stock price would be the equivalent of, of $44.14 on September 4th, 2019. I don't know if that's a close or open, whatever. Um, and it's been the the stock has been dropping today, but the the recent high on August thirty first uh, was it's like four hundred five hundred dollars. Okay, so that's more than ten x. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about that is that I I also I was looking at Model Three sales the other day, and Q one twenty nineteen. Right, so before Q one twenty nineteen, there was production constraint. The Model Three just went up and up and up every month. Sales went up. Q one twenty nineteen was the first time sales actually went down uh, on the Model Three, which is the new hot. Like this is what people are saying: there's going to be millions of potentially, you know, 
uh, or a million a year of, of this vehicle or, or something like that. There's all kinds of crazy projections. Um, after that first monthly drop, not including that first uh, quarterly drop, excuse me, of Q1 2019, in the five quarters since then, it's been averaging about 80,000 units a quarter. Um, so it's it's essentially gone flat. And yet in that same time period, the stock has gone up 10 times. And so like, yeah, it, it just, you know. Well, and, and the thing just to like defend Tesla for a moment here, there is a lot baked in about expectations for the future and the promise of the company. And then again, that's totally normal. Naturally, we saw that happened with Amazon when they weren't even like they were had a revenue, but they weren't making any money. They weren't profitable. We saw some similar things happening and, and that's okay when you're a growth company, you're betting on, or you're investing in the future growth, but also right now in this specific interesting time, the market itself is just very um, exuberant and not necessarily based on a lot of fundamentals. And so it just, Tesla is not just being swept up in the wave. It's like the peak of the wave and oh yeah, a lot no, of other companies. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did, but there were some other companies too. I mean, you can't just put it all on Tesla for, for creating that. Um, maybe in relation to others, um, but there are a lot of other companies that are completely out of the realm of automotive that have also seen really massive spikes. So yeah, tech companies specifically. Somehow our conversation turned into, um, which is hilarious because I uh, can't even trade stonks, you guys, Yeah, but I do study them. Um, We should close out this hour. It's been a really long time since we've been, um, had a new show. And so we'll do more of those in the future, y'all. So uh, if there's, unless there's anything else you'd like to talk about, we had other things on the list, but. There is actually one thing I want to I want to give a, a quick shout out to, and that oh, is right. uh, the Department of Transportation's Inclusive Design Challenge. Um, I've talked a bit here and, and on Twitter, uh, Twitter and elsewhere about um, you know how how important the accessibility uh, uh, potential uh, for for autonomous vehicles is, um, and so this is something I really just care about a lot on a personal level, and actually something we're going to be working with with DOT at, over at Pave at some point, but. For now, um, basically, it's a it's a five million dollar challenge. Um, the first round of proposals needs to be in by October thirtieth, um, and so uh, I would just really uh, encourage you know companies out there, startups, whatever. Like, I think it's really important, especially you know when you're doing sort of educational work about AVs. Like, there's all there's always it's a lot of talk about speculation about what might happen or what the benefits or the challenges might be. There's no substitute for real things, though. When you when you when, when you have actual real work being done, um, that 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 show it shows the benefits of of a new emerging technology that is not mature yet, like AVs, um, in in a, in a really good way. And so, um, I would love to just see more companies out there uh, bidding on uh, or, or, or proposing rather for this design challenge. Um, and uh, you can find information on that at transportation.gov slash accessibility slash inclusive design. If you also just Google DOT uh, inclusive design challenge, you'll you'll find the information on that. Um, the first round of proposals, like I say, it's it's pretty basic. It's, it's something you can definitely get together in, in 
a couple weeks uh, if if you put your mind to it. Um, and so here's a way to get some government money to do uh, some good. And I think you know that's something I would love to see uh, the AV space do more of, particularly around um, improving mobility and, and personal autonomy for uh, for people with disabilities who are not served well by our, our current car-based mobility system. Great. Well, thanks. And we'll continue. Maybe we'll mention that in a couple more shows to encourage some participation on that end. There's certainly a lot of opportunity where we've seen. So thank you again for listening and come back often. Ed, any uh, parting words? No, um, this is fun. I like, I like doing the atomic house. We, we should do it more. We should do it more. So thank you again for listening to another episode of the Atonicast.